Good afternoon. My name is Laura Bachman, and I'm the Chief Medical Officer for the Division of STD Prevention at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. I would like to thank the meeting organizers for inviting me to speak with you today about the current CDC STI treatment guidelines and give you an update. I have no disclosures. And these are the learning objectives. And um, I'm not going to read these to you. You're, you'll have them for your reference. Um, but for the interest of time, I'm going to move on and uh, go through the roadmap for the talk today. We're going to start with STI screening in HIV care settings and then go through some pathogen-specific reviews for gonorrhea, chlamydia, mycoplasma genitalium, herpes simplex virus, and syphilis. And then I'm gonna leave you with some resources. In 2020, there were 2.4 million cases of chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis. And these numbers represent increases for all of the STIs except chlamydia. Now it's um, the decrease in chlamydia cases in the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic is thought to not really reflect a true decrease, but rather changes in screening practices that occur due to uh, clinic closures, test kit shortages, et cetera. In fact, in 2021, the preliminary data show that chlamydia um, is also increasing and the other STIs unfortunately continue to increase as well. So as a provider, you do have a role in um, combating the STI epidemic, and I'm going to start with uh, screening um, recommendations in HIV care settings. For individuals living with HIV um, who are sexually active, all individuals should be screened for syphilis, gonorrhea, and chlamydia at entry to care, at least annually, um, but more frequently if at increased risk. And the screening should be based on site of exposure. For trichomoniasis, um, really the recommendations for women living with HIV to be screened at entry to care and at least annually. Um, and trichomonas is actually the most common STI in women living with HIV. Now, one area of the guidelines that was expanded in 2021 was STI screening for transgender persons. And I do want to be clear that this slide does not encompass all of the recommendations for this group, um, but I'm just going to hit on some highlights. So basically, um, screening STI screening for transgender persons should be based on current anatomy and gender of sex partners. Individuals who are not known to have HIV should be offered HIV screening. And it is, um, the literature shows that transgender persons who have sex with cisgender men are at similar risk for, of, for STIs as cisgender MSM. For transgender women post-vaginoplasty, um, these individuals should be screened for chlamydia and gonorrhea at all sites of exposure um, at the oral, anal, and genital site. And the specimen type used should be based on the tissue type used to construct the neovagina. Finally, transgender men post-metoidoplasty, um, if the vagina is still present and there's a need to screen for STIs, a cervical or vaginal swab should be used. Now, STI testing patterns, uh, this, I'm going to just briefly go over this uh, study that was conducted at four uh, sites in the United States using the CNICS cohort data. Um, from 2014 to 2018. And the punchline here is that there's still room to improve here with our screening rates. 
If we look in blue at MSM and transgender women, in orange, uh, cis women, and gray is like all individuals living with HIV, you see that around half of women had received STI testing at any site in the last year, and actually only about 35% of MSM. If we drill down to extragenital sites, uh, only about less than 20% of MSM had received extragenital testing in the last year. And this is important because we have now almost probably around a decade of data demonstrating that particularly for asymptomatic MSM, that extragenital sites are really where the infections are. And if we look at the infection rates in this study, this is infection rate by pathogen and by anatomic site of exposure per 100 um, person years. You see for gonorrhea um, and chlamydia in orange, that rectal sites have the highest infection rates. And then for gonorrhea, oral uh, follows right after that. And as we would expect, chlamydial, oral chlamydial infections much less common. And that's also a very consistent finding across studies. So um, there are, there's another study that I'm, I don't have time to get into today that shows that Ryan White providers actually uh, are better at screening. Uh, STD screening than other providers, but I want to encourage you there's still uh, room for us to grow in this area. Related to STIs, uh, another phenomenon that is, is not new, but um, it, it's important is that individuals, there's a smaller proportion of individuals that contribute disproportionately to the number of STIs, and that's not a new concept in STDs. These are data from IPERGAY, um, and these are um, men, MSM, who were recruited for a PrEP study in France and Canada, and they were screened for STIs at baseline and every six months. And as you can see um, on, under the participant column, 40% of individuals did not have an STI at all during the study follow-up. Then you have about 20% who had one, and then 40% uh, had uh, more than one. And amongst those 40%, you'll see, if you look at the, the different colors, um, I'm sorry, I don't have a pointer to point it out, but they're, you know, they are contributing um, the vast majority of STIs um, in that cohort during that time period. So that kind of brings us to this uh, uh, DOCSI-PEP study that we keep hearing about during this meeting. Um, and it's a very exciting study that was uh, just reported for the first time at the IOS, IAS meeting in Montreal. And it's a, uh, it was an open label um, trial to, of doxycycline 200 milligrams uh, within 72 hours of condomless sex. And the goal being as soon as possible after the condomless sex, uh, this doxy should be taken um, and with a maximum dose of 200 milligrams Q24 hours. They, they studied two different cohorts. So it was MSM and transgender women um, who were either living with HIV or who were receiving HIV PrEP. And in order to get into the study, individuals had to be um, have male sex at birth uh, be male sex at birth, living with HIV or on PrEP, and have had one or more STIs in the last 12 months and had sex with at least one um, male partner in the last 12 months. And so STI testing was conducted quarterly, you know, all multi-site testing, gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis was checked, culture was obtained for gonorrhea um, before treatment. And this was out of San Francisco and Seattle. And as you've heard um, already in this meeting, uh, this study was uh, uh, truncated uh, by the DSMB because of the strong um, uh, impact of the DOCSI-PEP in reducing STIs. 
So, and that was found in both cohorts, both the PrEP cohort and the individuals living with HIV. And you can see overall, it was about a 65% reduction. It was seen across all STIs um, in both cohorts. So very exciting um, data that, you know, builds on the data that we've seen previously uh, from the IPERGAY study, even though in this study also gonorrhea was uh, impacted, which uh, was actually a bit unexpected, I think, um, based on the previous data. So right now, CDC is working on putting some interim guidance. Um, in the meantime, we have put out uh, this notice on the STI treatment guidelines webpage, just for some considerations uh, for providers to think about and um, whether or not to give doxy, offer doxypep to their um, patients. But there's still things to work out in terms of like who exactly should receive it. Um, you know, there's data on uh, resistance that um, has, some of it has been presented, but we still have low numbers of, um, of isolates just because extra genital uh, collections, it's hard to get a good yield on culture. But um, the tetracycline resistance rate was around 25% at baseline. And after uh, follow-up, the numbers are very small. There was a small flag that there may be an increase in, in some tetracycline resistance and people who acquired gonorrhea on docipep, but the numbers are really too small to make definitive conclusions right now. And the data on staph aureus um, is still being worked on. So I'm gonna to move to a question now. This is a 20 year old patient who comes in with a two day history of urethral discharge and dysuria. His exam confirms this. He reports um, oral, penile, and rectal exposures during sex. Like many of our patients, a rash with penicillin when he is five, he doesn't remember any further details. And after collecting specimens for oral gonorrhea and for urethral and rectal gonorrhea um, and chlamydia, what empiric therapy should be um, initiated? Would it be ceftriaxone, 250 milligrams plus azithromycin, one gram? Cefixime, 800 milligrams plus doxycycline, 100 milligrams twice a day for seven days? Ceftriaxone, 500 milligrams plus doxycycline, 100 milligrams twice a day for seven days, or genomycin and azithromycin, or none of the above. And I think y'all can vote now. I wanted to read all those out. They were kind of long answers, but if y'all could vote. And I'm gonna go ahead and move on out of the interest of time. And it looks like you guys uh, got that right, uh, 90%, so that's great. Um, so that brings me to the treatment guidelines changes for gonorrhea, which it, thank, it looks like you guys are on top of things here. Um, Philip Record said it best when he said, a gonorrhea begins and God alone knows when it will end. And we've made progress, but we just can't seem to keep up with this bug. And so it continues to be on the urgent threat list for CDC. Um, due to the drug resistance that seems to be innate with this, with this bacteria. In 2009, um, about 76% of the isolates from our gonococcal isolate surveillance project, uh, which is our sentinel surveillance project for gonorrhea, looks at urethral gonorrhea specifically in men, um, they were 76% were fully susceptible. In 2021, preliminary data, and I apologize that number is not showing up there, but it's around 50%. If we looked at the trends over time in yellow and in uh, green here, ceftriaxone and cefixime respectively, thankfully the MICs have been stable. 
um, for both of those antibiotics. However, you see in pink with azithromycin that there's a steady march up in terms of the uh, proportion of isolates with elevated MICs. And this, these data are some of the data, not all of it, that, that led to the dropping azithromycin from the gonorrhea recommended regimen. So currently what is recommended for gonorrhea is 500 milligrams IM in a single dose. Um, give a gram if the patient is 150 kilos or above. And then there's alternatives of genomycin um, plus azithromycin, which was in the previous guidelines, or cefixime 800 milligrams in a single dose. If ceftriaxone or cefixime is used and uh, chlamydia has not been ruled out, then they need doxycycline um, uh, for seven days to cover chlamydia. If chlamydia has been ruled out, you don't need to, to do that. The treatment for um, oral GC is really the same, but we set it apart because there's really not an acceptable alternative for this drug, for, for ceftriaxone in this setting. And reflecting the importance of the oral site for gonococcal infections, um, we did add a universal test of cure for oral GC, seven to 14 days post-treatment. Some data that has come out since we've published this um, indicates probably best to be more on the 12 to 14 day end of this because we're seeing a lot of false positives when the test occurs occurring around the seven day mark. All right, so chlamydia, another bug that we made a pretty dramatic change for and, and azithro was demoted to the alternative regimen list here. Um, so doxycycline, um, 100 milligrams uh, twice a day for seven days is the recommended treatment for uh, chlamydial infection. And part of the, uh, or I guess a big part of this decision was based on data that came out um, this, from Dombrowski and colleagues, um, another trial that was stopped prematurely due to the effect of um, uh, the, the uh, impact of uh, the this analyses that were done in the interim analysis. And this was a randomized controlled trial of doxy for, um, versus azithro for rectal chlamydia and MSM. And as you can see, regardless of how they slice the analyses, the doxy in blue is consistently more, significantly more efficacious than azithromycin in orange. And then there's another group from Australia that published similar data in the New England Journal of Medicine around this same time and essentially the same uh, treatment effect. Rectal chlamydia is not so just important for MSM, also women. Um, have rectal chlamydia. In fact, up to 90% of women with cervical chlamydia can have rectal chlamydia. Um, a history of rectal sex does not um, predict if an individual has rectal chlamydia or not. Um, and we've long thought autoinoculation from the um, cervix to the rectum could have played a role. There's some other interesting hypotheses we don't have time to get into today. But because there's concern that the rectal site if persistently infected could also auto-inoculate the, the genital site and lead to the morbidity we're worried about, um, that also played into to this uh, decision to change the chlamydia treatment. Now, one of the biggest pushbacks we've had is the concerns understandably about doxy adherence. And I wanna give you some reassurance that there does seem to be a disconnect between doxy adherence and treatment failure. Part of that is because we've never understood exactly how much doxy is required to cure chlamydia. And if you look at the older literature, like single dose minocycline was uh, highly effective back in the 80s for chlamydial infection. I did a study when I was early um, in my career of MEMS caps and found that 16% of participants took the medicine like we would expect them to based on uh, you know, how it was prescribed, but only about 6% had a positive chlamydial 
uh, PCR at the end of uh, at these follow up. So some reassurance there. I think this is an important research question for us to try to narrow down how much doxy we really need to give. Now I'm going to talk about MGENT. That's another bug that's causing problems. It's on the wet, uh, watch list now for the 2019 antimicrobial threat report. And that was a new thing. Um, since the last guidelines were published, we have an FDA cleared test for multiple anatomic sites. Um, however, we, it is not recommended at this time that population-based screening be conducted for MGEN. We have more that we need to understand about the natural history, particularly in women. When should you test? In persistent syndrome, so persistent urethritis that failed treatment, persistent cervicitis, who consider it in PID, um, and that testing would be recommended. Culture is, takes forever and it's not really available. In individuals who have MGEN, in terms of treatment, sequential therapy is what is recommended, and that's a lead-in with doxycycline, 100 milligrams twice a day for seven days to decrease the bacterial load, and then followed by another antibiotic to eradicate the MGEN. And because we do not have resistance testing available in this country at this point, really everyone's going to need moxifloxacin for seven days. Um, if you're in an area where resi resistance is low, and I'm not sure where that is right now, um, or resistance tests were available, then if it were susceptible, you could consider an extended therapy with uh, azithromycin two and a half grams over four days. Going to now go to our old friend syphilis here, and we're going to get into another case. This is a 45-year-old male with HIV, intermittent adherence. Last CD4 was around 343 and a viral load of 63. And he has a history of active hepatitis B, HSV, perianal warts that were resected in the past, and syphilis. On the 16th of August, he came into the emergency room with perianal pain, itching, discharge, and bleeding. He had some new perianal lesions. Um, and they've been going on since the end of the previous month, and he was discharged from the ER with amipamod and ibuprofen. He returns two days later because he feels like he, his throat's closing up and he can't swallow, and he has noticed he has oral lesions now, and he is admitted. Social history is significant for oral, penile, and rectal exposure through sex. He does report multiple partners and meth use. So we're gonna go through some pictures here. Um, this is one lesion from his mouth and then his tongue. I don't know if y'all can appreciate that uh, raised area on his tongue. A penile lesion that is healing, but if you look very closely, he has some other areas around it um, uh, that um, are more papillosquamous in nature. And then another penile lesion that looks very different from the first one I showed you. And then his uh, perianal area, he has several lesions of different morphologies. He has some fleshy warty lesions. He has some umbilicated lesions. And then in his anal area, he has actually some ulcerative lesions. And there is his hand. So what diagnostic testing should be performed? RPR, monkeypox PCR, HSV PCR, Chlamydia and gonorrhea at all sites of exposures or all of the above? <laughs> all right, this is kind of a trick question. <laughs> all right, look at you. All right, John, I, I had another 100% here. <laughs> All right, so yes, all of the above. And to just reiterate, just because Dr. Bricks didn't make enough, uh, a point of it is we're seeing a lot of co-infections right now. 
So this individual had secondary syphilis with an RPR of one to 256, but all of his lesions were monkeypox positive as well. So he, um, his HSV was negative, which I thought, you know, the one on his lip, the first one I showed you, I would have thought was HSV. Um, and then um, oral and rectal testing negative, still has active hep B. And he was empirically treated at the time of admission with broad coverage that, that really nailed everything on the, the front end. So uh, they, they hit it uh, with that. And he was on Tecaviramat because he was having trouble swallowing and, and breathing. So just to remind folks that primary and secondary syphilis continues to increase um, and the rate ratio, rate, rate ratio for uh, the male to female um, continues to drop because the rates are increasing more in women now than, than in men. And this is why we're also seeing more um, congenital syphilis infections. Just to go over some pictures to remind you, because a lot of STD stuff is dermatology, um, the picture of an oral chancre and then a penile chancre that's mostly healed but when you palpate it, it's still indurated um, in that particular patient. A secondary syphilis, palmar, truncal rash, and also mucus patches in the, on the mouth. And those are frequently missed. Um, they, they can make the mouth really sore. Um, so always a, a good oral exam is great to do. And then I wanted to bring up primary and secondary overlap because it's more common in individuals with HIV. And you can see a, a healing primary chancre in this uh, woman on the clitoral hood, and then a secondary papillus squamous lesion starting on her foot. So I'm not gonna belabor the, uh, the treatment for syphilis because it's not changed. And unfortunately, we have not had real advances here in therapy. So penicillin, 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 still the drug of choice. Um, you know, there's uh, doxycycline can be used in individuals who are not pregnant. Um, and, uh, but just for pregnant um, persons, they really need to have benzathine penicillin. So with that, I'm gonna cover some resources. Uh, we, we did get our STI treatment guidelines app out um, recently. So um, it's ready for download for whatever phone uh, type you have. Um, and so I'd encourage you to, to download that so that you, know, you have access in clinic. We have some, uh, I think it's new and improved. It, it has uh, some easy access areas to it, um, but also you can access the full guidelines through the app if you're so inclined to read all about the background of the recommendations. I wanna remind you of the National Network of STD Clinical Prevention Training Centers, uh, sister organizations to the AETCs. We work together a lot um, and they are um, you know, basically here. We have eight uh, regional and, and two national centers and the nmptc.org website, you can learn more about the STD courses that are offered. There is an STD clinical consultation line, the stdccn.org. It's kind of, a, it's a warm line, uh, but you can ask uh, any STD questions and STD experts will answer. Um, and then I want to remind you of the national STD curriculum and our, the esteemed editor was here uh, earlier, Dr. David Spock, giving you um, another talk, but um, this uh, curriculum has been updated with the changes to the guidelines, has free CME, CNE, and lots of different ways that you can, the, the learning can take place. And with that, I wanted to acknowledge the co-authors of the guidelines, Laura Quilter for her assistance with patient case and all, everyone else. Uh, there's a lot of effort goes into this uh, uh, document. So thank you so much for your attention. And um, I actually ended a little bit early. <laughs> well done. It's hard to kind of keep up with STIs. It's uh, 
very difficult. Let's see what kind of questions we have. Um, how do you handle persistently positive mycobacteria in genitalia? <laughs> yeah, so that's a that's a real mgen is a real problem um, because the bench is not deep for treatment right now for mgen, and we don't understand the natural history fully in terms of like what is the long term morbidity. Um, and, and that sort of thing, particularly in women, but even in men with urethritis, where it is the best documented so far, MGENT is the most common cause of ure persistent urethritis in men. Um, it's, we don't know in the universe of men with urethritis and MGENT how many will become persistent. I don't know if that makes sense. But in the meantime, we don't have a lot of antimicrobials uh, therapies. So, um, you know, there's the, um, what I showed you, the doxycycline is an important component to start that on the front end to decrease the bacterial load so that you can hit it with the moxifloxacin. Um, and if that does not work, then there are, uh, there are several different regimens that are totally, we don't have data on, okay, that we don't get into in the guidelines like minocycline. Um, for two weeks, um, and uh, and even lefamulin, which is not approved for this reason, uh, for this indication, there is a study going on at the University of Washington, Seattle, that is uh, is looking at that drug. But you really get into a hard spot pretty quickly, which is why at this point CDC is recommending that uh, you know particular you, you test people that are having persistent symptoms and. You know, if, and I would encourage you to reach out to the STDCCN um, if, if you're getting into a situation like this. We're starting, to, we're going to release an MGENT treatment failure portal soon from CDC so that we can also help uh, with giving uh, technical assistance to providers because it, it is a challenging situation. There's not a one answer to that. One thing that I've gotten calls about in the last two years are people with syphilis who've had very high uh, titers on RPR, they get treated and the titers don't really go down much. So I'm talking one to 512, one to 256, mm -hmm. kind of hanging out. They admit them to the hospital, they give them 14 days of IV penicillin and it may drop to one to 128, but no lower. Are you hearing much about, what's your advice uh, on how to manage that kind of serofast at a high level? Yeah, it's, it's really, it's really syphilis serologies. I, I, I call it job security for a venereologist because it is so difficult to manage these things. Okay, so, and, and particularly when they're at high titer and they don't drop quickly because based on the literature we have, the higher the titer, usually the faster they'll drop. Um, younger the person, faster they'll drop. Having said that, if you were to look at our guidelines over time, we keep stretching out the duration of time by which someone can achieve this fourfold drop and it's because as we have more studies come out anywhere from tw around 20 percent of people with primary and secondary don't reach a fourfold dilution drop in a year now we really get our blood pressure up when it's elevate really high titers like that and right. you did the right thing in in terms of you know if there's concern for neurosyphilis and that sort of thing and i have gone through that at uab actually with high titer um, and ruling out neurosyphilis, you know, I gave him, I think, I think I may have given him a year with a lot of counseling with him and, and stuff. And we finally tapped him. He did not have neurosyphilis and treated him again, but it, it took about a year and a half for him to start dropping. I don't know why. Yeah. 
Yeah. It's unusual, but yeah. So uh, a question back to the doxycycline, which seems to be the theme of the conference. Mm -hmm. um, when you, if you're going to use it, how much do you dispense of the... Uh, we have not, we have not gotten there okay. in terms of, uh, you know, that sort of guidance, but we, we are, you know, actively working on interim you give guidance. Them some. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're, <laughs> you're going to give them a supply. For, right. I, I just don't, I can't say what our recommendation is going to be. Right. Yeah. Okay. Um, there's something called the Speed DX. For, speed X. Yeah. Speed X. Yeah. What, what do you know about that? And what can, how do we use that or should we use it? So there's the Speed X actually has a resistance uh, test for MGENT, but we don't have it available in the United States. And we had hoped that they were going to pursue it in the United States. And, and my understanding is, is they're not. And so that is leaving us with you know, when we identify MGENT, then we have to really much, pretty much assume macrolide resistance. I didn't get into the numbers there, but it's on order of at least 50% up to usually, you know, not uncommon to see 70% in an area. Um, and that seems to correlate clinically with failure to azithromycin. The fluoroquinolone resistance, we don't know as much about. There's different types and does not correlate as strongly with clinical failure. No, there's not two X's and speed X. They were smart. They 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 thought that through. I think you might want to repeat the comment. Oh, oh yeah, the, he was asking if there's uh, two X's and speed X, and there's right. not. <laughs> there's just um, one. <laughs> what do you do when somebody has a ulcerative lesion, general ulcerative lesion that looks like syphilis, um, but the RPR is negative? Mm -hmm. uh, do you look for other causes? Do you treat empirically? Is that happen? Sort of the opposite of the root. Last question. I yeah, yeah. So, um, so for genital ulcer disease, depending on how long the ulcer has been there, you can have a non-reactive RPR. I mean, it can be up to thirty percent um, can have a non-reactive RPR, especially if it's pretty fresh. So, if you clinically feel like that that this is syphilis, um, it would be advisable to go ahead and empirically treat them. I've done this, you know, in my practice. I always just counsel the patient about what I'm doing. We're going to check, you know, follow up blood work and then also depending on if you think it's hsv and uh, it's been a while since we've done a study like this but the latest one that i recall that looked at the etiology of genital ulcer disease there was a co-infection about 12 percent of the time with syphilis and hsv um, so co-infection again can be common but i would encourage you if you clinically feel like that's what's going on even if the rpr is non-reactive treat follow up the serologic Okay. What about treatment of persistent bacterial vaginosis? Oh, that's another one that's, uh, that's challenging with, uh, with BV. So the first thing with bacterial vag vaginosis, of course, is to make sure that that is what you're working with because um, in terms of uh, the diagnostics, um, I've seen a lot of, you know, I guess, incomplete um, workups or whatever and, and or letting the patient um, you know, tell you that there's recurrent BV and not that it's just, we know based on studies, I think this was mentioned earlier, um, patients uh, are not, it's hard to diagnose oneself with vaginitis, um, you know, accurately. So once you've done that, uh, there's a variety of different regimens that we have in the guidelines that can be tried. And then if those do not work and they continue to um, have persistent symptoms and, and objective documentation, that that's what's going on. Um, then there's a there's a variety of suppressive regimens that can be given. Um, so uh, yeah, that and and we don't know at this point. It's still not recommended to treat sex partners. Um, 
but ironically, condom use does reduce uh, um, recurrence. So there, there's obviously a sexual component to it. When you're using penicillin in a penicillin allergic patient, you work through the graded thing. You give your first dose and do you have to repeat all that for dose two and three? You just move ahead and just use it. If you're desensitizing? Yeah. Yeah, you should be able to proceed. Yeah. Yeah. Because it's kind of close to it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, are you seeing more false positive RPRs like the one-to-one -one titer with a negative treponemal test? Um, I, I can't state that uh, we're aware of that. I, I can tell you that um, one of the RPR, and I'm blanking now um, on, on the, the make of it, and I, I don't think it's out there now, but we had some issues around potential uh, false positives from COVID yeah. um, and COVID vaccination, and, and that RPR has been um, actually taken off. The market so those things, that's always possible you know viral intercurrent illnesses vaccinations um, those sorts of things can can lead to that so this is a maybe an ideal thing but recommending sexual abstinence while you wait you treat someone for syphilis and then you're waiting for the response do you recommend abstinence and maybe even if you recommend it what's the likelihood that that's going to be adhered to well, I, you know, I, <laughs> I can't predict what the likelihood is, um, but it is something that I would count, counsel a patient about and encourage. And then if it, that's not possible, then, you, you know, work through some harm reduction type strategies, depending on where lesions are. Having, you know, if condoms do not always protect against uh, transmission of syphilis, it depends on where uh, the lesions are, but it would be, I think, a conversation Right. Yeah. Question here about Shigella, especially multi-drug resistant Shigella, maybe being transmitted in an S as an STI. Have mm -hmm. you been seeing that or hearing reports of that? Well, uh, that's a good question um, because I mentioned that the azithromycin uh, decreased um, MICs. That increase, those uh, changes actually contributed to changes in GC uh, treatment with azithromycin, but also the enteric pathogens. Um, that are sexually associated, um, and we see outbreaks, particularly in MSM, they are becoming increasingly resistant, including macrolide resistant. And so we also had in mind antimicrobial stewardship principles, what are the other pathogens that may be along for the ride with the gonorrhea, that sort of thing. And so, yes, we, we are seeing that um, yeah. as well. And we'll finish maybe with a vaccine question. The, the question is about the meningococcal B vaccination on a serious species. Is there any cross protection to gonorrhea? But I'll follow up with that and saying, if people can have recurrent gonorrhea every four months with a mm -hmm. lot of exposures, do we really expect a vaccine of any sort to work? Well, it's gonorrhea vaccines have, uh, development have been uh, frustrating, um, but it, there has there um, are data that show about a 30% efficacy on average. Um, there's New Zealand data. There's a study that CDC produced um, looking at, and these are not like part of prospective vaccination studies, but just like population-based studies that saw a similar 30% reduction in individuals who'd received meningitis B. And that was with that was with the meningococcal B vaccine. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the New Zealand group is with their meninge B, but then we have domestic data too. Oh, that's yeah. better than I thought. Okay, well, good. Well, thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. It was great. You're welcome.